Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Today, I will be speaking with John J. Marini, MD, about the Congress session Clinician Pro-Con, Paralysis and Proning in ARDS, which he moderated at the 45th Critical Care Congress in Orlando, Florida. Dr. Marini is a professor of medicine at the University of Minnesota and director of research at Regents Hospital in St. Paul, Minnesota. Thanks for being here today, John. Thank you, Margaret. Glad to participate. Before we begin, do you have any disclosures to share? I have no disclosures that are relevant to this podcast. Okay. We're going to talk a little bit about neuromuscular blockers and prone positioning in ARDS. In my professional life, we've kind of gone full circle, if you will, with neuromuscular blockers. We used to paralyze everybody all the time, and then we went to almost never paralyzing anybody. And now the pendulum is kind of swinging back to maybe we should paralyze people some periods of time. So could you give us some background on why would neuromuscular blocking be of benefit? Well, Margaret, I'm... uh... I've been around uh, a long time as well, and uh, I was strongly influenced by the information coming in the 80s and, and 90s about the uh, weakness-associated complications of neuromuscular blockade, but they always made sense, uh, and they've always been used by clinicians when necessary. And as you, as you state, now there's some enthusiasm for almost always using them in severely injured, lung-injured patients who we're having difficulty uh, with. Uh, paralytics clearly have benefit in somebody who has a very high demand for oxygenation, minute ventilation is high, the breathing pattern is asynchronous, they will reduce the need for the intensity of ventilation that we need to provide and improve oxygenation as well. It does take over respiratory control, of course, and this has positive and negative aspects to it. I think it's been strongly emphasized recently that patient ventilator asynchrony may be more important than we previously thought and that um, neuromuscular blockade may be justified simply on that basis. I have been aware for a long time, and I think many clinicians have, that when PEEP is used and patients have a high ventilation requirement, they often use the PEEP as a counterspring. So they push against PEEP below the desired expanded volume of the lung and then release it at early inspiration, which increases the driving pressure and contributes to phasic opening and collapse uh, and possibly even persistent collapse in the basilar well-perfused zones. And neuromuscular blockers allow PEEP to achieve its intended uh, increase in transpulmonary pressure throughout both phases. The lung protection effects of uh, neuromuscular blockade, you know, uh, may include reducing the plateau pressure and driving pressures, as I've just mentioned. It may help reduce stress focusing and, therefore, the actual tissue strain encountered at vulnerable regions of the lung. And, of course, we've been interested in driving pressure recently, the excursion between plateau pressure and PEEP. And when you are using spontaneous muscles, we never know quite what the effective driving pressure is. In any event, we can control the minute ventilation, the administered amount of pressure that we apply. And for those reasons, I think it's received deserved recent attention. And of course, the study coming from France, uh, the uh, Papazian trial, uh, the Accuracis trial, told us that there is at least a potential for a mortality benefit. You mentioned and sort of in passing that the risk of neuromuscular blockers is that they can promote neuromuscular weakness. What are the other downsides to using neuromuscular blocking agents? 
Well, I, you know, I think most uh, experienced clinicians are aware that there's a potential for increased secretion retention, and uh, that may impede the the ability of the, of the patient to be liberated from the ventilator eventually or even produce ventilator-associated infections, and, and it itself may you know, impair oxygenation and, and ventilation if, it, if the secretions are not cleared and, and coughing is not effective. And, of course, coughing is eliminated. It's uh, an interesting possibility that, at least from my viewpoint, that some variation that is a part of natural and healthy breathing, it is eliminated when we use neuromuscular blockers. And it is possible that the use of prolonged neuromuscular blockade itself could lead to regional lung collapse and interruption of biologically variable ventilation. The importance of that when you're using high levels of PEEP or prone positioning really hasn't been studied, but the imposed monotony of breathing pattern may contribute to atelectasis, for example and every hospital probably has one recollection of at least one patient for this. If there has been airway plugging or there has been a, uh, some a procedure-related disruption of the endotracheal tube position, it can cause a catastrophic and undetectable cause uh, rise in, in CO2 that in vulnerable patients, particularly those with head injury, could be uh, something that needs to be closely monitored and vigilance be pursued for. The other, the other things we still don't know after these many years is how to best monitor paralytics. Should we always release the patient every day or after a certain number of hours, or should we monitor the train of four, etc.? There, there still is some controversy about how to best monitor them. So I think there are downsides to neuromuscular blocking. On the other hand, the risk is worth taking if uh, the indications are there and there's sufficient vigilance on the part of the administering team. What are the data in the literature that speak to potential benefit of neuromuscular blocking? Well, you know, there have been many observational and experimental studies that have been done in the past that set the stage for the the landmark study by Laurent Papazian and his colleagues in the New England Journal of Medicine. I think our listeners will probably remember that cisatricurium was administered for 48 hours in an unmonitored fashion to prevent the uh, biasing that neuromuscular blockade monitoring would have uh, provided. They were really the first and, and still the only study that has been published showing that mortality could be improved. It was improved after a uh, censoring of the data uh, after uh, 18, I think 16 to 18 days, and that, that separation was maintained out to uh, 90 days. Those patients indeed received neuromuscular blockade, but some of them were, were treated in ways that are, are now understood to be uh, helpful. I think they used prone positioning in some of their patients, for example. This study is the major clinical evidence and a randomized clinical trial that we're uh, we're looking at and agreeing that uh, you know it, it is it is an excellent study that has its it has its faults but is basically influencing practice and uh, let me say parenthetically that when you have a practice that many clinicians have found useful over the years but unsupported by clinical trials evidence when a clinical trial comes out that confirms what they think they already know then there's a big swing 
in clinical practice. It becomes very influential and maybe even disproportionate to its worth. It needs to be needs to be confirmed before we can be absolutely sure that it always has a good uh, 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 is always to be done. Like most things in critical care medicine, it it isn't always done in every patient. There are selected patients that it, it should be definitely considered for, and others that it should not. Certainly, the critical care literature is full of uh, randomized controlled trials that show benefit only to be repeated and not show benefit in another study. So your point about confirmation is certainly a valid one. Well, I, I think that we've we've learned a great deal from clinical trials, but we have to understand that they usually encompass a spectrum of patients, some of whom drive the benefit or or the lack of benefit, depending on the composition of the group. So uh, I, I applaud Laurent Perpazian and his, and his colleagues for having brought this to the fore. They have been true believers, shall I say, since the 90s, and they have been using it in their hospital consistently and publishing uh, some influential papers. In critical care medicine, I remember writing an editorial in 2006, and I said the early phase of ARDS, a uh, place for paralytics, uh, on the basis of a, of a study that was published by Farrell and colleagues in that year. And they have been consistent, and they have been convinced, and they pr- provided the data in a multicentric trial that affirmed what they uh, what they believe. Let's go on to prone positioning. What are the potential benefits of putting a, a patient prone? Well, Margaret, let me begin by saying something that I think we said at, at the SCCM pro-con debate. We are not set up for sustained supine positioning as we have adopted in critical care practice. Certainly, even during sleep, we have rotational changes. Most patients do, uh, most persons do. And the supine position is the least favored of all of the positions that people use. Lateral positioning, um, usually more than lateral to one side and alternating with uh, lateral to the other side, uh, and even prone positioning during sleep. So in inherent Movement and change of position is a characteristic of health, and in disease, we have sustained these patients in a supine way, and this is completely different than the animal kingdom. The, the all mammalian animals adopt a prone position as their as their activity mode. Even if you look at opossums and you look at bats and and such, they are only in trees to protect them, their vulnerable structures from attack. Uh, when they ambulate, they ambulate prone. So the prone position is a natural evolutionary rationale, I think. We're not meant for sustained supine positioning. But it makes it easier for us to take care of the patient. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, we can we can invade all the structures uh, that we want to catheterize in uh, an instrument, and we face the patient as we do in real life. However, it is not necessarily physiologically best for them. You're, the question you asked, what could it help? It is a when you turn from supine to prone positioning in the approximate recumbent orientation of zero to say twenty degrees, which is customary in the clinical setting then uh, you change the stiffness of the chest wall. You push on the abdomen. You firm up the anterior structures. The posterior dorsal structures are naturally stiff, and so it's an evening of the stiffness of the chest wall, which allows the lung to actually fit better because of a shape differential between the lung and the chest wall, including abdomen. Plus, there are gravitational forces. The combination of shape matching and gravitational forces allow a more 
or even transpulmonary pressure, meaning the pressure from the alveolus to the pleural space. The pleural pressure gradient is reduced. The transpulmonary pressure gradient is reduced. And airway pressures that we apply, for example, during critical care, can be more consistently uh, administered across the, uh, across the lung. And by the way, that applies to driving pressure as well. Some would contest that, but I have measured it in the, in the laboratory and found that to be true. So it improves the uh, ventilation perfusion ratio in most patients, maybe 7 to 80%. It does reduce injurious regional tidal stresses and potentially ventilator-induced lung injury risk. Certainly improves uh, airway secretion drainage because our <laughs> nose and mouth are in the front and most of our lung is in the back. And maybe for this reason, it may help prevent ventilator-associated pneumonias, which the literature has suggested. And uh, with be- more open airways uh, in de- dependent uh, in dorsal zones, I should say, it improves the efficacy of inhaled n- nitric oxide, has been shown, uh, and possibly for inhaled aerosols as well, whether they be bronchodilators, whether they be uh, inhaled prostacycline. Uh, jury's still out on that, but it, it basically uh, opens airways and, and, and improves drainage. Something that I think Rick Albert and colleagues uh, and Ann Ivor Douglas uh, would agree with, I'm sure, from Denver, it reduces the cardiac compression of the dependent lung, uh, especially on the left side. A very nice paper by uh, Albert and, and Hubmeier, Rolf Hubmeier, showed years ago that there was a significant compressive effect of the heart on the left lower lobe, as we all know. That's reversed when you go to the prone position as the heart rests against the breastbone. There, there are other things I can, I can point out, but they're, they're much less well documented. For example, when the heart sinks to the uh, most dependent position in the chest, then lymphatic drainage tends to improve, or at least the gradient for lymphatic drainage tends to improve. And for that reason, lungs sometimes clear very slowly in the prone position when, in fact, they did not in the supine position. And I've had patients with cirrhosis, for example, who seem not to be making any progress with their lungs when turned prone did, uh, did have that benefit. How about the risks of prone positioning? Well, uh, the risks of prone positioning, like almost every other thing, depends on experience. There is a, a definite jump in plateau level, uh, so to speak, that you need to, need to gain in skills. I said that awkwardly, but that's, you know what I mean. You need skilled nursing. Mm-hmm. You need a team approach. Uh, you need to, it to be a, a procedure like inserting a line or anything else. You need to do it well, precisely, and with attention to detail. The, the risks of not doing so are significant. Even though a skilled team rarely encounters them, you can extract a tube, you can advance a tube, you can cause a kink you can ca- in, in tubes, you can uh, cause a kink in jugular, uh, jugular venous zones in patients with increased uh, cerebral edema with a potential consequence of that. During the proning it itself, which is the high-risk time, there can be uh, oxygenation drops. In fact, uh, many nurses refuse to undertake prone positioning because they notice that in one position or another, slight turns, slight manipulations of patients uh, make a big difference to the patient's stability. Usually for oxygenation reasons is the, is the thing they're concerned about. But hemodynamic instability uh, is, is also a concern. It, it, it is somewhat of a challenge during the flipping process itself. There are contraindications that exist 
you can have a, a long list of this if you're, t if you're thinking about relative contraindications, but usually these are just relative difficulties, not contra true contraindications. Spinal instability is the one that's most frequently measure, uh, mentioned, and I agree with that. There are patients who have been freshly operated upon, patients who have, for example, you know, a pneumothorax or a uh, asymmetrical distribution of, of chest wall abnormality, maybe, maybe severe fractures, that kind of thing, displaceable fractures could be considered important contraindications, but even then, most of those can be accounted for. Now, in terms of, the, of what people notice, the, almost all these patients turn prone for longer than 12 hours will have puffiness of the face. If, if there is not attention to the eyes, uh, then you, you risk increasing intraocular pressures and reducing the amount of perfusion to the, to the eyes. This has been noticed, noted in prone positioning of patients in the OR, but, but seldom reported in uh, the context of, uh, of critical illness. But it is a definite thing to pay attention to, the, the positioning of the head, uh, the avoidance of pressure on, on the eyes. Everyone notices the edema of the face. There can be breakdown on the skin. Even the breast tissue has been reported to, on a hard, hard surface to be under-perfused under in ischemic injury and necrosis having resulted. But very commonly, the pressure points, the, the knees, the bony prominences are, are the areas at risk. And nurses who are familiar with prone positioning use uh, appropriate surfaces and also return the patient with relative frequency side to side, use the swimming position rather than arms out straight or arms at the sides. And they avoid the decubitus breakdown problems that the original proning studies had reported in perfusion. Now in clinical practice, they're almost, in our institution, almost never seen, particularly because we do not keep the patient prone for an unnecessary period of time. What period of time do you use for proning patients? Well, you know, if a patient is uh, very sensitive to improvement in oxygenation and potentially in recruitment, we will turn the patient prone and keep them prone most of the first 24 hours. But we find almost invariably that we need to either send the patient to a procedure that requires moving the patient in a supine position or cleanup of the anterior structures, which, of course, the nurses can do most effectively in the supine position. It, it isn't that you can't have very a very complicated patient in the prone position with tubes and lines everywhere. Even even extracorporeal membrane oxygenation can be sustained in the prone position. But in fact, the the dressing of the patient, the reduction in the facial edema, the cleanup uh, is much more palatable to the nurses as well as effective for the patient. And of course, we haven't talked about the family, but the family really does need to see the the patient is well cared for and that the edema is not excessive, uh, facial edema, etc. It's a, uh, it's a complex group of uh, factors that, that encourages our institution anyway to turn probably for uh, six to eight hours per day supine if we can, if we can sustain oxygenation. 
if we can't sustain oxygenation or there's a decline in deterioration in oxygenation in the supine position, then of course we flip them back prone. Mm -hmm. And there can be hemodynamic reasons also to want to go into the prone position. Didn't mention this earlier, but uh, probably should have. Whether it be the recruitment that we see often in the, in the severely ill early phase patient when they're prone or some other explanation, it has been uh, nicely studied and shown that the pulmonary vascular resistance tends to re, uh, decline in the prone position and the stress on the right ventricle, which may be extremely important in eventual outcome, as you as an expert in that area uh, may, may be following and well aware of, the right ventricle needs to be protected. And some, especially again in France, uh, Antoine veillard Baron and colleagues and, and others have emphasized how important it is for the health of the right ventricle in ARDS to be in the prone position where the blood vessels are adequately dilated. Margaret, I, I could I could go on about this, but uh, I'm sure you I'm sure you probably have other other reasons to uh, to quiz me on things. So. Well, I was going to ask you to talk. You kind of made reference to study from France. What are what are the data in the literature that support prone positioning, and how do we use it? You know, you try to use it for the bulk of you know sixteen, eighteen hours per day, perhaps. When do you start it? When when should one start it? How long should one do it? Um, and so forth. What do we know from the literature about when and how to use proning? Okay. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> A nice, easy no, question. No, it's, a, it's, a, it's an excellent question. And in fact, I hesitate to mention this, but a very prominent person who heads uh, possibly the most influential journal in the world asked me uh, if uh, I could explain why people are now proning again. And uh, my response was because the randomized clinical trials that had preceded it were discouraging. And, and therefore, it was considered an inconvenient practice and an inconvenient truth that prone positioning was not helpful when, in fact, the study that was targeted on the correct population showed a benefit. Let me go backwards. The first referencing to, to prone positioning being helpful uh, appeared in 1976 and anecdotally said that uh, proning was helpful in, in uh, several patients and encouraged it. And Charlie Bryan from Canada, a very well-respected physiologist, emphasized it at the time that uh, prone positioning might be more physiological in patients with severe lung injury and what would, at that time was called the adult respiratory distress syndrome. And then there were many studies done. I have to uh, applaud and, and recognize Rick Albert and his group for emphasizing, at least in, for American audiences, the potential benefits of prone positioning for ventilation, perfusion matching, etc. Uh, it's very clear in the experimental literature that prone positioning does improve ventilation, perfusion matching, and as I mentioned before, reduces transpulmonary pressure differentials, uh, and that all fit in with the evolving ventilator-induced lung injury ethos, which we've all adopted now. But through the 80s, there was interest in the, in the late 90s, early 2000s, there were studies that looked at the, the large Italian study headed by Gattinoni, showed that six hours a day of proning was inconsistently effective. A breakdown of his literature, however, if you look at the secondary analyses, demonstrated that the severe group had a huge signal for benefit, almost a 50% reduction in mortality, which is a very hard and difficult endpoint, in the severely injured group. Now, the less severely injured people studied 
actually at, in, at uh, inopportune times for proning uh, efficacy. In other words, they had been sick for long periods of time, been treated with other modes, etc., as well as early people, a big mixture. But the moderately ill patients did not do any better in the prone position. And on average, because there were more of those, it suggested that there was no consistent benefit for mortality. Now, that was uh, repeated in, in France, actually, by Guerin, the same individual who headed up the uh, Proceva trial. And again, there was no consistent benefit, although there were hints that the severe early injured group would do better. And then Jordi Mancebo from Barcelona in Spain organized a very effective but underpowered, or I should say prematurely terminated study because physicians <laughs> basically refused to randomize their patients to not getting prone positioning because they were convinced that it was benefit, beneficial. But the, ba the basic message was there was a strong trend for mortality benefit in severely injured patients treated long enough for 20 hours a day. And then, make a long story short, the Proceva trial was published in 2013 from France, led by Guerin. I think everyone is at least aware of this study. Yes, they cherry-picked their, their patients. They looked at severe and early patients, and they made sure they had ARDS. And they found, after entry of the patients into the trial, that there was a strong and steady improvement in the Kaplan-Meier curves favoring prone positioning for the right group of patients who were managed in the prone position for at least 17 hours a day. So the clinical trials literature supported the experimental literature. And by the way, our group, Len Brocard, led the, led the studies that we conducted in large animals here that demonstrated that the potential for injury to both healthy animals and to previously lung-injured animals uh, was much lower in the prone position, especially in the dependent supine zones. I'm saying that in a very complicated way, but the dorsal regions were the ones that improved dramatically in the prone position. When you're using ventilator-induced lung injury profiles of mechanical ventilation, either in healthy animals or in previously injured large animals, and that encouraged uh, many to rethink the question as well in, in terms of lung protection. John, I think the people who are listening to this podcast would like to know how you approach a patient with ARDS. I think we're probably talking about the severe ARDS group, but how do you approach a patient? Do you paralyze them all? Do you prone them all? Do you have criteria for using one or the other or both? What? How do you think about a patient with ARDS when you first are evaluating them? Oh, boy, Margaret. <laughs> this is a good one. Um, first of all, and I may be the only person who believes this, I, I think we don't know what ARDS is clinically. We, Fair enough. Uh, you know, and it, and it's uh, it's a mixture of patients. So we we judge the criterion based on oxygenation. There really isn't a strong specific mechanics related indicator. But be that as it may, I have a patient. Let us say they have a predisposing condition that's consistent. They have hypoxemia. They appear to be in distress with a high ventilation demand. Then I consider that patient to be in that category. And what do I do? I do the usual things that the doctors out there, I'm sure, are doing. I supply supplemental oxygen. I, I, I try to use a tidal volume that's less than 8 ml per kilogram predicted body weight. 
I don't target four in everybody, six in everybody, even eight in everybody. Some need a little bit more than that initially uh, until we can sedate them adequately and look at their trend and trajectory. If, they're, if they stabilize rapidly, treating the underlying condition, and they stabilize within the first you know, six hours, let us say, I will not go immediately to uh, any further intervention. If they're still breathing very actively, then, and I think this is underemphasized, we need to pay attention to the demand side, not what we do, but what is the demand, uh, causing the demand of the patient for ventilation. The minute ventilation requirement is extremely important, and we're learning that more and more in terms of ventilator-induced lung injury, which I can come back to in a minute if you like. And so uh, calming the patient down, and yes, I do go to neuromuscular blockade if the, the patient's discoordinated with, with the ventilator or I'm resorting to pressure-controlled modes of ventilation, which may be applying uh, lung injury patterns because of the increased transpulmonary pressure that vigorously breathing patients may have. If they're using expiratory muscles, again, uh, try to find the right peep, try to recruit them, etc. But if they don't slow down, if, they don't, if they're still in trouble, then that is the time when I will try a paralytic agent, try to regulate and downscale their demand side of, of ventilation after deep sedation, then paralysis. And if that, in addition to the other measures taken, do not reverse the trend, I will then prone them and apply lung protective strategies using recruiting maneuvers after I have prone the patient to find a PEEP level which is consistent with a mechanically beneficial and oxygenation beneficial output. That's, that's condensing so much and so little, but basically, how is the patient doing with conventional measures? If they're not doing well with conventional measures, then we need to take control. Or if conventional measures are putting their lungs at risk for uh, increased driving power, I would say, rather than driving pressure, then I think we need to uh, take control of the situation, at least in the first 24 hours, because I think the game is won, won or lost in the first 48 hours. 72 hours. And parenthetically, that may be one of the reasons why Papazian's trial worked and the emergence of the difference between the two groups happened at 16 days rather than, rather than in, the, in, the, in the first week. It may be that we interrupt a catastrophic cycle early on. So in the very most severe patients, sedate, neuromuscularly paralyzed, prone if the conventional measures are not working. And make those decisions early. Don't wait days and days into their course. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, you know, every clinician does things slightly differently. We'd all like a magic formula for every patient. I was I hoping you'd give us one. Oh, magic formula. Okay. <laughs> I was just with Gatnoni, and he's organizing a conference in Frankfurt, Germany in January for, for some people. And uh, it's called Cogito Ergo Sum. In other words, I think, therefore I am. And because uh, <laughs> there are so many things that we would like to put in stone that are actually not worthy of putting in stone. They're good direction uh, indicators, but they're not. Uh, every patient may need a slightly different path through the forest, so to speak. And it requires mm -hmm. immediate feedback. It requires uh, making an informed judgment, seeing how the patient does, and returning to the bedside frequently, communicating strongly with the nurses frequently, touching base with the family frequently. These are cornerstones of, uh, of old-fashioned medicine, but I think that's the way we should be continuing to do it. I, I think you're exactly right. Do you have any final comments you'd like to make? 
Well, I, uh, I, first of all, going back to the Orlando pro-con debate, I would encourage people to listen to the content of two excellent speakers, Ivor Douglas and Bob Heisey. They did a great job working through the, the details of a case that was complicated. You know, you have this very obese patient. Do you flip those patients prone? And Ivor said, no, no question, turn them prone. And, uh, and Bob was a little more hesitant, but uh, he was taking the opposite side of an issue. It's an interesting discussion, as interesting as any I've participated in, to, to see the reasoning and see how, how really experienced, excellent clinicians approach a complicated patient. It is not, they didn't agree 100% with each other, but on the important issues, I think they did. So I, I would refer your listeners, our listeners, to, to that. I would finally like to say it's extremely important not to neglect the heart and vascular side of all these issues, including ventilator-induced lung injury. I think we know enough about ventilator-induced lung injury now to know that there are many factors that influence the outcome, not just driving pressure, not just plateau pressure or PEEP or transpulmonary pressure. It's a, it's a complicated process that, in general, will respond to reduction of demands for ventilation and for cardiac output. If I had to crystallize one sentence, I would have to say that. Uh, you know, reduce the demand of the patient for excessive pressures and, and strain on the, on the critical organs. And I would just like to swing back to something that you have said several times, particularly with regard to prone positioning. You have emphasized the importance of skilled nursing staff. I mean, this really is a team effort to turn these patients, particularly the obese or those with many complicated devices, turn them safely and keep them safe without dislodging any of our devices or damaging their skin. I think, you know, the importance of the team cannot be overemphasized. I not only agree with that, Margaret, but I actually agree with a slogan uh, that uh, some of the nurses have come up with in a recent controversy here locally in Minnesota. Nurses put the care in health care. Yeah. And they they do. I mean, they are at the bedside continuously. A well-trained nursing team for any almost any uh, important goal that we have is absolutely the starting point. May I be a little bit uh, self-serving here and say that uh, I work with some fabulous nurses here at Regents Hospital. We published together with Rick Albert, I think it was 2004, first author was Erica Messerol, how to do the rationale for prone positioning, how to do it safely using the protocol that we've used here since 1992. We can't, you can do it. In fact, a couple of, <laughs> we have proned with as few as two nurses when at times of extreme overload in our in our unit because they're comfortable with it, because they're trained, because they're good. And uh, that training is essential and the therapist should be involved as well. Everyone should understand why you're doing it and what the danger signs are and what the, what the, what the nuances are. Uh, do you turn prone when you use volume control, you use pressure control? Some people say it doesn't matter. I say it does matter. Use volume control so that you guarantee the ventilation and uh, in the uh, and the relevant driving pressure in the prone position early on until you can the patient settles out in prone positioning the patient can can improve over a period of six hours not just immediately and the, the immediate reaction may be somewhat worse or somewhat better than it eventually turns out to be but it's a team effort. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, John. It's really been very interesting and a pleasure talking with you. And a pleasure for me to participate, Margaret, and I'm honored to be asked. Thank you. 
We have been talking today with Dr. John Marini from the University of Minnesota about the controversies around paralysis and proning in ARDS. Thank you for joining us today. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCriticalCare podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. All of SCCM's live events are offered as either a self-directed or on-demand course so that you can learn at your own pace from the comfort and convenience of your home or office. These courses are a convenient way to access the educational content from SCCM's live meetings. Visit www.sccm.org for more information. Margaret Parker, MD, MCCM. Dr. Margaret Parker is Professor of Pediatrics at Stony Brook University in New York and is the Director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook Children's Hospital. A former president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, Dr. Parker is involved in quality improvement and standardization of care in the pediatric ICU, as well as resident education. Her clinical interests include sepsis and septic shock in children. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.